Would you open your Bibles, please, to Genesis chapter 19? Genesis chapter 19 presents for us not only God's judgment of the exceeding wicked cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, but it also presents for us the tragic consequences of Lot's spiritual decline. Remember who Lot is? Abraham's nephew. So this chapter is not a very wonderful chapter to teach, but it comes next. And of course, we believe in teaching the whole counsel of God. I had one commentary. I could not believe it, but he actually skipped right over this chapter. I was so eager to hear what he had to say about it, and he didn't have anything to say about it. He went from chapter 18 to chapter 20. Now, I would like to do that because I don't really relish what this chapter contains, But we need to teach the whole council, so we're going to be talking about the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah and a lot of uh, perversion that we'll see in this chapter, unbelievable, and then uh, also look at the uh, consequences of, of Lot's compromising life. Well, the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah gives to us, really, a prophetic picture, a prophetic type of the inevitable judgment of the world, which will come in the yet future days. And I don't just speculate on that because I know it for a fact because the Lord Jesus himself told us this. He said in Luke chapter 17, verses 28 to 30, he said, as it was in the days of Lot. Now, we always associate him saying as in the days of Noah, but he also said as in the days of Lot, Thus shall it be in the day when the Son of Man, and he was speaking of himself, is revealed. So how will the days look at the time of the Lord's return? They will look as they did in the days of Lot, who lived in the wicked city of Sodom. So as we talk about these things, maybe you would want to compare our contemporary world scene with what we're going to be reading about in chapter 19. Now, Abraham's intercessory prayer of Genesis chapter 18, which we looked at last time, and if you know you weren't here, please get the tape cassette. I can't say pick up the notes. We don't have notes this year. I will have them at the end of the year, but we don't have them now. So if you missed that lesson, please pick up the cassette tape. It's only $1. We sell them at our cost. But uh, Abraham had prayed on behalf of of Lot in chapter 18, and we see in this chapter that his prayer was indeed answered because Lot was spared from the judgment which fell on Sodom. But because his testimony for the Lord was so pitifully weak, there were not even ten righteous people living in Sodom. And that's a very sad thing because it means that Lot did not even influence for the Lord, the members of his own family. Because if he had, then there would have been ten righteous people in Sodom. So Sodom itself, along with most of Lot's own family, was destroyed. So in stark contrast, then, to our study last week of Abraham, who was called, uniquely in the Old Testament, the friend of God... Genesis chapter 19 now takes us to a look at Lot, who although he was a believer, it's hard to believe, (laughs) but he was a believer. And you know, people that studied Lot's life 
for all the years of the Old Testament and the intertestamental period debated back and forth whether Lot was a saved man or not. And they really didn't know for sure until the Apostle Peter wrote his epistles, First and Second Peter, I can't remember which one it was in, but he is the one who finally, thousands of years later, told us by way of the Holy Spirit that Lot was a righteous man. So Lot was a believer, yet it seems like he worked harder to be the friend of the world. Last week we looked at Abraham, the friend of God. Now for the next several weeks we're going to be looking at Lot, the friend of the world. Lot simply loved Sodom too much. And Sodom, just like Egypt, is a picture of what? The world. Like Egypt was a picture of the world, Sodom is a picture of the world. However, whereas Egypt probably stressed more the power and the idolatry of the world, Sodom pictures more for us the erotic and perverted pleasures Um, particularly the sexual pleasures of the world. But Lot coveted the opportunities that the city offered to him, both in the way of business and in the way of creature comforts. He enjoyed too much the prestige which he enjoyed in Sodom and the sense of security which he felt within its walls, even though, as he was to find out, that was a very false sense of security which he had there. However, Lot's love for Sodom and all that Sodom represented brought him nothing at all in the end except heartache, despair, and tremendous loss. A study of Lot's life is really rather critical for you and I because I guess I could really say this and be right. A good majority of Christians attempt to live on the very same level of spirituality as Lot lived. They don't deny their belief in Christ, but they are simply just not sold out for him. In their minds, being sold out, you know, totally surrendered, is simply just being too fanatical. You know, we don't want to quite go that far. Besides, you know, they have their careers and their places in society to think about, and they enjoy being with their their friends, their worldly friends and having a good time and they don't want to be ostracized too much from the culture in which they live. The Abrahams of this world might be respected and they might even be the ones the people run to when they're in trouble. Isn't that what we saw happen when Sodom was in trouble and they'd been captured by King Ketileomer? There was a man that escaped and who did he run to for help? To Abraham. So people might respect the Abrahams and run to them when they really have a prayer request, but they're not generally the ones who are surrounded by friends, a lot of friends, and, you know, the the prestigious people in this world, the uh, intelligent and the, the successful people in this world, or the ones who are necessarily recognized with worldly honors. Christians like Lot want to have their fire insurance you know, by having Christ as their Savior so that they know they're not going to go to hell, but they have not surrendered to his authority over their lives. The backslidden, lukewarm, double-minded, compromised Christian will never experience the joy of his or her salvation. 
as we will see, Lot certainly did not enjoy his. Lot's life demonstrates to us perhaps more clearly than any other individual in all of the scripture that um, it is not a happy thing to be a compromised Christian. He ended up in one of the lowliest conditions imaginable for a believer. I mean, it's really hard sometimes to look at his life, see how he ended up, and understand that he is in heaven, but he is. But his life was almost completely wasted. He was saved, but as it says in 1 Corinthians 3.15, it was yet so as by what? Fire. He was saved. He's in heaven, but all of his works were burned up. It was only God's grace that accomplished anything good in his life. We'll look at there was some good, which actually came out of his life. We'll look at that, Lord willing, next week. All right, here is our outline, actually, for the next two weeks. <clears throat> Terry gave me an ultimatum that I either, <laughs> either cut down my lessons or <clears throat> I was out of here. So, <laughs> no, she didn't quite say it like that. But anyway, I had a very long lesson today, so what I did is... Um, I cut it in half, and so we're going to look at the first three parts of our outline today, and then next week, we're going to look at the last three sections. So this morning, we'll only look at Lot's welcome of the visitors who came to see him, or I I had two titles for each one of these sections, and so you could either call it Lot's welcome or Lot a compromised believer. That'll be verses 1 to 3. Then we'll look at Lot's worldliness. Or another title could be Lot, an ineffective leader. That'll be verses 4 to 11. And then in verses 12 to 14, we'll look at Lot's witness. And, or we could call it Lot's powerless witness. Okay, so let's begin by looking at Lot's welcome. Lot, a compromised believer, verses 1 to 3 of Genesis 19. It says, And there came two angels to Sodom at even, which means at evening. And Lot sat in the gate of Sodom. And Lot, seeing them, rose up to meet them. And he bowed himself with his face toward the ground. Who's that remind you of? Abraham. And he said, Behold now, my lords, turn in, I pray you, into your servant's house. And tarry all night and wash your feet. And ye shall rise up early and go on your ways. And they said, Nay. But we will abide in the street all night. That was kind of curt, wasn't it? And he pressed upon them greatly, and they turned in unto him, and entered into his house, and he made them a feast, and did bake unleavened bread, and they did eat. Well, Lot, here, the nephew of Abraham, more than probably many, many people had had tremendous advantages both to know the true and living God and to live a godly life which would bear much fruit. After all, when his own father, Haran, had died back in Ur of the Chaldees, that was in Genesis 11, verse 28, Lot had been taken in by his uncle, Haran, his father's brother, and his name was Abraham. When Abraham then received his call from the Lord to leave Ur of the Chaldees and begin his journey of faith, Lot was taken along with. That was in Genesis 11.31. And Lot was given the privilege, therefore, of learning to grow spiritually side by side with Abraham. 
great Abraham, the father of the faith. What an opportunity. Wouldn't you like to have had that opportunity to walk side by side with Abraham? However, it seems that when Abraham had learned his lesson about having mistakenly gone down into Egypt. Remember when there was a famine in the land of Canaan and he didn't quite, you know, Abraham was learning some lessons along the way. He made a mistake, didn't trust the Lord, and went down into Egypt because Egypt was not suffering from a famine. Well, he learned a lot of lessons by trial and error when he was in Egypt. But Lot, it seems, did not learn those lessons, the lessons that Abraham had learned. Instead, Lot allowed Egypt to take place in his, take a place in his heart. He really liked Egypt. Actually, he benefit, benefited quite a bit from their journey down to Egypt because they both came away with much increased goods. So even though Lot, with Abraham, left Egypt... Yet, Egypt did not leave him. There was a desire for the world inside of Lot. Consequently, when Lot was given first choice of land, due to the fact that both of them, Abraham and Lot, had so many more cattle now, and there wasn't enough room for both of them, and remember their herdsmen were beginning to fight, uh, Abraham gave Lot first choice. He said, take whatever land you want. You have first choice. What did he do? What did Lot do? He very selfishly and immediately, without any hesitation, it tells us he lifted up his eyes and looked toward where? Sodom. I mean, without any hesitation. So selfishly, he chose to settle near Sodom in the very fertile Jordan plain. That was in Genesis 13. When he actually moved, we are told that he pitched his tent toward Sodom. Now, notice he was living in a tent then. Okay, he's still a pilgrim just passing on through like Abraham. And if we had been able to ask Lot at that time why he did not move into Sodom, why he just pitched his tent toward Sodom, Lot might have very well told us that, oh, no, 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 that's an extremely wicked city, and it's certainly no place to raise a family. He probably would have said that at that time. And yet, sometime later, we find that Lot actually moved into Sodom. You can look at chapter 14, verse 12, tells us that he moved into the city. No longer in a tent but in what he thought would be a permanent dwelling. His citizenship was still in heaven, but he was not looking at himself so much as a pilgrim, as a citizen of this world, pilgrim passing through. Now he wanted something permanent, so he had a house. Like a moth, which is attracted to light, Lot just could not stay away from the bright lights of Sodom. He wanted the more exciting life that the city had to offer. He must have truly believed that he could live in such a place and yet remain unstained by it. He wasn't really thinking clearly at all about what this would mean for his family. It's like a man who would uh, move his family to a city merely because he might make more money in a job opportunity and not think about 
the church, the quality of the churches that might be in that area, or the school system, or anything else, just moving there for his own advantages. Lot focused only on the benefits of having all the creature comforts. And I'm sure his wife was in on this as well, of a permanent home. And the advantages for uh, his own prestige and job opportunity and um, the business transactions he could make. You know, he would keep his, all his herds of cattle right outside the city. Then he could go into the walls of the city and, and um, sell cattle and, and just become very prosperous. He was thinking, too, of the shopping opportunities and perhaps uh, the restaurants and the nightlife and the, uh, the uh, schools, the education for his children, and the clothing, which would be provided, all these advantages of, of living, or advantages that he thought were advantages of living in a city. Even after danger brought the danger that uh, had come to his family, the warning God had given him when all of the Sodomites, including Lot and his family, were carried off as captives by King Ketelamer and those other kings from the east. Remember, they were wondrously and miraculously rescued by Abraham. Even after that warning, Lot went right back. I mean, here was an opportunity for him to live in a tent, live with his Uncle Abraham, or at least nearby. But what did he do? He went right back into the city of Sodom. And now we discover, discover in chapter 19, verse 1, that he had even become some kind of a city official or a magistrate, because where do we find him sitting? Right, he's sitting in the gate of Sodom, and that means that he was sitting as a uh, a magistrate. He was administering justice over the city. And if any city had no justice, it was this city. So we already see then that he is in a compromised position. Now, someone might say, someone might object and say, well, wait a minute, Catherine, are you saying that it's wrong for any child of God to live in a city or to be involved in politics? or to serve his community as some type of a leader. No, that's not what I'm saying at all. Of course not. The problem here has to do with motives. If Lot had moved into the very wicked city of Sodom in order to be a missionary to that city, to the people of the city, knowing, clearly knowing, that God had called him to that city, uh, then that would be one thing. And, of course, he would have to be very tight and very, have very tight and very firm control over his family. He would really have to be a godly spiritual leader of that family. And he would need to have a very godly wife at his side. But Lot did not go to Sodom to witness to it of his God. He went there with the wrong motives. He moved there so as to benefit from it and not so that it would benefit from him. So you see, worldliness is not a matter of location or geography, is it? Worldliness is a matter of the heart. It's a matter of heart attitudes and um, motives. Sodom, as we're going to see, was so very, very vile that moving there and bringing his family to dwell in that city was almost like a Christian father taking his family to live in a brothel. I mean, it was actually even worse than that, a very wicked city. And Sodom, by the way, is 
the name by where which we get the term sodomy, which speaks of the perverted act of homosexuality. So you know what a sick society it was. Well, as mentioned in our introduction, Lot represents the modern-day, half-hearted, carnal, backslidden Christian, the man or the woman or the young person who attempts to have the best of both worlds, you know, the best of the Christian world and the best of the secular world. He desires all the heavenly benefits of knowing the Lord as Savior, but he also desires the earthly benefits of having... um, Prestige and, you know, fame or honor or wealth, acceptance and respect by the men of the world. Well, enough of that. Let's get actually into the study and look at verse 1 here. We find that two angels, actually the two angels who had left Abraham and also the pre-incarnate Lord Jesus Christ, while they were still talking to one another, back in the latter part of chapter 18, remember when Abraham was trying to intercede on behalf of Lot and all the Sodomites, those two angels had left the two men, I think that was in verse 22 of chapter 18, and now we find that they arrive at the gate of Sodom. And what time of day did they get there? Even which means at dusk, just as the sun is beginning to set. Now, if you will remember, what time of day was it when the two angels, along with the Lord himself, had arrived at Abraham's tent? What time? It was the heat of the day, you know, somewhere probably between noon and 2 o'clock. And I would say that probably the Holy Spirit's mention, you know, there's nothing in the Bible that's there by accident. There's always a reason for everything that's mentioned. Probably the Holy Spirit inspiring Moses to write the time, to mention the time of day in both of these instances is so as to indicate that one man was living a godly life and was therefore able to stand in the Lord's presence in the full light of the day because he had nothing to hide. While Lot who was compromising his testimony for the Lord and for truth, not only missed out on being in the presence of the Lord himself, because you notice who doesn't come to, to, to Sodom? Who's missing here? The Lord. Only the two angels come. You see, Abraham was not in fellowship with the Lord, was he? So the Lord could not come and sup with him. Not only did he miss out on having fellowship with the Lord, but he had his own life symbolically pictured by the fact that the angels arrived at even or at dusk. Lot himself, you see, was at the dusk of his own life because everything only got darker and darker from, for him from here on. Actually, there are um, some obvious similarities in the two accounts of Genesis 18 and 19. Uh, different uh, similarities that we do see between Abraham and Lot. One, for example, was that they both bowed before their visitors, and we'll talk about that. But there are also some very obvious distinctions, as I already mentioned, with regard to the time of day and the fact that the Lord did not visit with Lot, but he had visited with Abraham. Now, one new such distinction is the... um, is the place where we see the two men sitting. The, the visitors, the three visitors of chapter 18 found Abraham sitting where? In the doorway of his tent. 
which speaks really of a place of separateness from corrupt society. It also tells us that it was in the plains of Mamre. I mean, he's out in the wide open spaces. And where did they sit? Under a big shade tree. Mamre was known for big, huge, luscious, shady trees. What does that kind of convey to you? A place of separateness, a place of uh, relaxation, what? Protection, etc. Now, where did the two visitors, the angels of Genesis 19, find Lot sitting? In the gate of the city. A place which speaks of his position as a leader in a very, very wicked city. A city full of evil and abominations. Also, we notice that Abraham uh, ran to meet his special visitors. That was in 18.2. And Lot merely rose up to meet them. But both did seem to sense the importance of who their visitors were. They, they, even if they didn't know exactly, they did sense, because they both were saved men, they both sensed that their guests were uniquely special in some way. And uh, even though Lot was living a very compromised testimony, yet he did greet his visitors to Sodom with great reverence and humility because he bowed himself before them, it says, with his face toward the ground. So we have to give him credit for that. And then he also graciously invited them, since it was already dusk, to spend the night with him in his house. And he even referred to himself as their what? Servant. In verse 2. But with the mention of his house, which, by the way, in case you're interested in these sort of things, this is the first time the word house appears in the Bible, we find another contrast with Abraham. Abraham lived in what? A tent. Abraham, you see, oops, can't get this. There we go. Abraham had his focus on where? The celestial city. It tells us in Hebrews 11 that he was looking for a city whose builder and maker is God. He realized that he was just a, a pilgrim passing through this world and that his real citizenship was in heaven. So he lived in a tent. His focus was on heaven. It was not that he was, you know, so heavenly minded that he was no earthly good. It wasn't that he was just removed or uninterested, uninvolved in life, he'd already proved that he was very interested. What had he done? He had risked his own life to go and save Lot and his family and all the Sodomites and the Gomorites and the others that were taken captive. He was very involved in life. Also, we just saw him last week interceding boldly on behalf of Lot and all the Sodomites. So it wasn't that he was uninvolved, but his focus was on heaven. He set his affections on that which is above and not that which is on the earth. The more he learned of God, the less he grew interested in the things of earth. Turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his Wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. But Lot, on the other hand, was very comfortable in the world. His focus was on Sodom. It was on the world and not on heaven. 
Therefore, he saw himself more as a citizen of Sodom than as a passing pilgrim. And so he established a house, and I imagine it was a very nice house. Now, it's interesting to also see that unlike their ready acceptance of Abraham's hospitality, back in chapter 18, the end of verse 5, the three guests had said to Abraham after he offered to uh, wash their feet, give them some water, fix them a meal, they said, so do as thou hast said. Rather than that, what do we find the two angels now in chapter 19 doing? They're actually kind of uh, abruptly, they um, respond to Lot's invitation to spend the night in his house by saying, nay, in other words, no, but we will abide in the street all night. And this is the first time the word street appears in the Bible. And you might say, okay, big deal. But it is kind of interesting if you compare it with the last time we read about a street in the Bible. Revelation 21, 21. And that is a street which is in heaven. It's a golden street, transparent gold, beautiful street. And I think that there is a great comparison with that street, which um, is always in the light because there is no night in heaven. This street is given to us in context of night and darkness, this street of Sodom. So there's some interesting comparisons there, and I've really given you just now one of the answers to your homework questions. But the difference was that the Lord knew that Abraham was not only offering his tent, you see, but Abraham was offering himself. So the Lord gladly went and fellowshiped with him and supped with him. Lot, however, may have been offering his home for the night, but he was a long way from surrendering himself. Lot's insistence, then, that the men come to his home tells us several things. It indicates that he was truly genuine in his desire to be a good host to his two special guests. And it also tells us that he knew how dangerous it was for anyone to be on the streets of Sodom, particularly when? At night. So it says in verse 3 that he pressed upon them greatly to spend the night in his home. As a city administrator, he knew only all too well what kind of vile crimes and passionate perversions stalked the city at night. Well, when the two angels agreed and Lot led them to his home, we are told that he made them a feast. But there's no mention, if you notice, of Mrs. Lot anywhere at all in this passage. Um, She was not involved in the preparation of the feast, as was the case when Abraham immediately went and got Sarah involved in ministering to the Lord. You see, they were co-laborers. They ministered together as husband and wife. We don't see that with Lot. Mrs. Lot is nowhere to be seen. As far as the written record indicates, she demonstrates no interest at all in spiritual matters or in heavenly guests. She didn't join her husband in his work of ministering to the divine messengers. And then neither does the Holy Spirit linger lovingly over the specifics of of the meal which was served. If you go back and read chapter 18 and read all that Abraham did to get a meal served, there's a whole lot involved more than what we read here. We just read that Lot 
prepared a feast. And um, there's only actually one food which is mentioned. We had a number of foods mentioned in chapter 18. Cakes of bread, a tender and good calf was prepared. There was milk and there was butter. I mean, you know, the Holy Spirit is just lovingly setting the table for us. But what do we find in in, uh, Lot's feast? It must have been pretty good, but all that the Holy Spirit mentioned was one thing. First time this word appears in the Bible, unleavened bread. He served them unleavened bread. And perhaps this, you know, leaven is used throughout the Bible to symbolize or picture what? You all know. Sin. Leaven is yeast. It pictures sin. You know, you let a little leaven in and it'll corrupt, spoil the whole loaf. (laughs) Take over. Same with us. It'll corrupt a little bit. We'll corrupt the whole thing. So it symbolizes sin. Well, perhaps this unleavened bread, which was served by Lot, was suggestive of his need to put sin from his own life. Just as he had taken the yeast out of the bread, he should have taken the sin out of his own life. Well, that's all we're going to say about... That was quite a bit, wasn't it? She laughed. About the, um, Lot's welcome. Let's move on now and look at Lot's worldliness, verses 4 to 11. But before they, this is after the um, angels ate, and before they lay down, the men of the city, even the men of Sodom, compassed the house round. That means roundabout. Both old and young, all the people from every quarter. And they called unto Lot and said unto him, Where are these men which came into thee this night? Bring them out unto us that we may know them. And Lot went out at the door unto them and shut the door after him and said, I pray you, brethren, do not so wickedly. Behold now, this is unreal, I have two daughters which have not known man. Let me, I pray you, bring them out unto you and do ye to them as is good in your eyes. Only unto these men, referring to the angels, do nothing. For therefore came they under the shadow of my roof. And they said, Stand back. And they said again, This one fellow came in to sojourn, and he will needs be a judge. Now will we deal worse with thee than with them. And they pressed sore upon the man, even Lot, and came near to break the door. But the men, this is speaking of the angels, put forth their hand and pulled Lot into the house to them and shut to the door. And they smote the men that were at the door of the house with blindness, both small and great, so that they wearied themselves to find the door. This is one of the sickest passages in all the scripture. Lot was not only a compromised believer with whom the angels were not anxious to fellowship, but he was also a very ineffective leader in his community. His worldliness caused him, you see, to neither fit in well in a godly setting or in an ungodly setting. You know, when he was still with Abraham, he was miserable because um, his heart was longing for Sodom. And yet when he's actually in Sodom, he encountered great agony of soul. We know this because the apostle Peter, here's the scripture, it's Second Peter 2, I think it's verses 7 and 8, Peter tells us that Lot was vexed in his righteous soul from day to day, both with the filthy conversation 
of the Sodomites. And yet he sat there day after day, you know, talking with them. But he was vexed in his soul about their filthy conversation and their unlawful deeds. You see, when you're a worldly Christian, when you're a carnal Christian, you know, when you're sitting on the fence and you you just want to kind of ride halfway between Christianity and the world, you're going to have no joy and no peace in your life. You're not going to be happy in the church because you're going to always feel guilty and you're going to be vexed in your soul when you're in the world. So it's no place to be. The best place to be is either hot or cold, but not lukewarm. It makes the Lord nauseous, doesn't it? And the best place to be is hot. Hot on fire for the Lord Jesus, totally surrendered, committed to him. Then you will have the joy and the peace that the world doesn't know. Well, in Genesis verses 4 to 11, what we just read, we find one of the most depraved scenes in all of the Bible. It is shocking. It really is. But it's very clear in its revelation to us about how depraved the human heart really is and can become. It also shows us how far a believer caught up in the world can backslide. Soon after eating, Lot and his guests, they were about to retire for the night, they heard a commotion outside the house. Apparently, what had happened is the news about Lot's two very special visitors had spread quickly throughout the male community of Sodom. Now, picture this. These are angels appearing as human beings. And whenever angels appear as humans, they always appear as males, never as females. And yet everywhere you go, what kind of angels do you find? My house is filed. I collect angels, and they're all, almost 90% of them are female. What? Oh, yeah, well, don't buy me any angels. My husband says I have too many. <laughs> but... Um, they always appear as male, and so if, if people would only read the Bible before they made their little angels, they would all be male angels. But um, can't you imagine that angels are perfect? I mean, they're sinless. Holy, this is a holy, these are holy angels, so they're sinless. And uh, they're beautiful. They're absolutely magnificent to behold. So I imagine even when they appear in human form, they're breathtaking. And so word got out that these two men were beautiful to behold, and it spread, you know, all throughout the city. Now, although Sodom is condemned in the scripture for a number of sins, for example, in Isaiah chapter 1 and chapter 3, it's condemned for uh, blatant indulgences of all kinds of iniquities. I mean, it wasn't just one kind of sin, all kinds of iniquity. Um, In Jeremiah, it speaks of their lying and their adultery. In Ezekiel 16, it talks about their pride, their surplus of food, you know, in other words, gluttony. They just ate too much. Um, Their neglect of the poor. Yet, the sin for which Sodom is most well-known is what? The sin... Of homosexuality. In fact, as I said earlier, the homosexual act is actually called sodomy. It gets its name from this city. So the crowd, which soon encompassed Lot's house, was not only made up of the young men of the city, which is to be expected, but also the old men as well. And it tells us that in verse 4 that they came from every quarter of the city. 
And the united cry of those lustful, perverted men who were behaving worse than wild beasts was, Where are the men which came in to thee this night? Bring them out unto us that we may know them. And what they wanted was they wanted to use them, of course, for their own sexual pleasures. Not only was this demand inexcusable in God's eyes, but even in pagan society, ancient society, this demand was taboo. Why? Well, for one thing, the Eastern laws of hospitality were violated. They were very, very um, big on hospitality. And these laws of hospitality were violated by their demand for Lot to hand over his guests, the guests of his home. And for another thing, their demand was that the men or the angels be handed over to them whether they consented or not. And this was not accepted by any nation in that part of the ancient world. You know, if if it wasn't two consenting parties, it was forbidden. Furthermore, their demand by such a force of numbers, I mean, this is speaking like just about all the men in the city, along with their threat of violence, which was given to Lot when he came outside in verse 9, that was a breach of civilized behavior. You know, later on when the law was given by God to Moses, homosexuality was stated to be a particularly offensive sin which was punishable by death. And you can read about that in Leviticus 20, 13. Romans chapter 1, verses 26 to 32 in the New Testament, it is cited as being an evidence of a society's well-advanced corruption. It's even stated in Jude 7, there's only one chapter in Jude, verse 7, that it was in particular the sexual sins of Sodom and Gomorrah which caused God to destroy them. It wasn't their sins of gluttony or um, pride or any of the other sins which caused him to destroy them. It was their sin of homosexuality. It was because they desired that they... um, They desired strange flesh, it actually says in verse 7 of Jude. And so God used them as an example to future generations. However, saying all that, we do need to be reminded that Christ himself brought great hope to the homosexuals and to the lesbians of this world, who are, by the way, not born that way. They are not born gay, just like none of us are born adulterers or born um, murderers. They, just like all other sinners, willfully choose to engage in their ungodly lifestyles. But Christ told us that Sodom was judged because of its sin, but that Sodom would not have been destroyed if the people had simply repented and turn from their sin. He said also that the sin of the people of Capernaum, remember Capernaum up in Galilee was where he spent a lot of his time during his public ministry, that actually those people were worse. Were those people sodomites? 
No, they were just your normal everyday people. But he actually said their sin was worse than those of Sodom because they had had the light of his presence with them for for so long. And they had seen so many of his miracles, and yet they rejected him. What's the worst sin of all? Rejection of Christ. That is the worst sin. That's the only sin that's unpardonable. If you continue to reject Christ until the moment you take your last breath, it's unforgivable. It will never be pardoned. That's the unpardonable sin. It's not suicide. It's not homosexuality. Homosexuality, like any other sin, it's, it's sin. But it is forgivable if the person will simply repent and turn to Christ and ask for his forgiveness. Actually, he said in Matthew eleven twenty three, And thou Capernaum, which are exalted unto heaven, because you have the Lord of heaven with you, shall be brought down to hell. For if the mighty works which had been done in thee had been done in Sodom, it would have remained to this day. Because those people, he's saying, if I had been there with them doing what I did with you, they would have repented. And remember what it says also, please, in Isaiah 55, 7. It says, let the wicked forsake his way and the right, unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return unto the Lord and he will have mercy upon him and to our God because he will abundantly pardon. We need to remember that. We hate the sin, but we love the sinners. And we need to, to give the gospel to them just as much as to anybody else. So anyway, outside of Lot's home, both young and old men burned with unnatural lust for the strange flesh of Lot's special visitors. They were not acting in secret about this. I mean, they had come out of their closets, and they were, they were proud of it, it almost seems, and they were loudly shouting out their craving and demanding Lot's cooperation, just like they're doing today demanding Washington, D.C.'s cooperation come out of their closets. Dr. Morris says, says this. He adds this comment. He says that if they had carried out their desires, especially in view of the resistance which they would no doubt have encountered, the orgy would certainly have culminated in murder as well, at least if those whom they sought to abuse had been ordinary men. Because, you see, there would have been resistance on the part of those men, and they would have wound up being murdered. Well, to his credit, we are glad to see that Lot intervened on behalf of his guests. He went outside of his home, and he closed the door behind him in order to protect his two special visitors. And then his statement to the mob. Now, this is something else. His statement to the mob really demonstrates more than anything, I think, his compromised position. And it helps us to see why he failed so miserably, not only as a spiritual leader in Sodom, but as a spiritual husband and father in his own home. Now, one way we discover Lot's ineffective leadership is that the citizens of Sodom actually came to his house and expected him to grant them their wish. I mean, this is what he must have been doing all along as a magistrate, as a leader in the city. Always giving in, always giving in. Well, they, you know, they're the ones who are going to vote me into office, so I better give in to their wishes. So they actually expected him to grant their desire. He had no testimony among them, or they would have immediately known that they should just go and break his door down. 
I mean, if he had a testimony, they would have known that there was no way godly, righteous Lot would have ever permitted them to have access to his guests to commit homosexual rape against them. So he had no testimony because they actually expected him to give in. Furthermore, his words to this beastly crowd betrayed the terrible weakness of his compromised life because although he knew enough about God and about God's morals and ethics and that sort of thing, he knew enough to know that the desires and the behavior of these sodomite men were wicked. Look at verse um, 7. He knew enough that that was wickedness, and yet what does he call those same wicked men? Brethren. I mean, you talk about a compromise. They're, what they're doing is wicked, but he calls them his own brothers. I mean, that's, that's a perfect example of a compromised believer, compromised man. Not only that, but then he went on to propose an almost unbelievable thing here. He offered them, instead of the two angels, the two, his two guests, he offered them his own two virgin daughters. I mean, as a mother, that just goes beyond my imagination. He said to the pulsating mob, Let me, I pray you... Bring them out unto you, and do ye to them as is good in your eyes? Yuck. Could Lot have really have fallen that low? I mean, it, it really does just go beyond our comprehension that a righteous man... I mean, this is why, can you imagine why theologians thought for years this couldn't be a saved man? Jews probably, since they don't believe the New Testament, probably still wonder if Lot's a saved man. Uh, but... You know, here he is offering his daughters. And again, now, he um, contrasts with Abraham. <clears throat> because although Abraham was willing to sacrifice his beloved son of promise, Isaac, it was in obedience to the Lord, wasn't it? It was a sacrifice unto the Lord, and he, in doing that, Past the greatest test of faith in the Bible. In willing to give up his son, he gained his son, didn't he? On the other hand, Lot gets absolutely no acclaim. In fact, he greatly loses any respect that he might have had left by having offered his two daughters to satisfy the wicked lusts of the sodomite mob. So whether he was trying to save his own life at this point, or even if he was um, attempting to save the lives of his two guests, still, that is no excuse for what he did at all. Even if Lot knew that his guests were angels, I don't know whether he did or not, but even if he did know they were angels, he still had no excuse for what he did in trying to protect them. Actually, if you think about it, if he did know that they were angels, he should have also known that they could handle that situation themselves very, very easily. I mean, angels have a lot of power. One angel wiped out 185,000 men of the enemies of Israel. One angel. So if he knew, knew they were angels, he, could, he should have known that they could handle this, and we find that they did, actually. So Lot was wrong. I mean, we can't make any excuses for him. He was terribly wrong, and he would reap 
what he had sown, because those same two daughters later demonstrate their own form of disrespect for him by doing what? They get him drunk, and then they actually lie with him. They have incest with their own father in order to conceive sons. Sick. I told you this chapter was sick, but that's how it ends. So it's no wonder that they behaved like that when their own father had chosen to raise them in such a grievously wicked city and then even offered them uh, to this lusting mob of men. You know, the only excuse that I have ever heard in Lot's defense is that he offered his daughters knowing that the mob, which you know consisted of homosexuals, that they would not be interested But if that was the case, then why offer them at all? I mean, surely he would have known that it wouldn't appease the mob and perhaps even uh, spark their anger, you know, make them angrier. And besides, what would it cause his own daughters to think about their father and his love for them? So there's really no excuse at all for Lot. Well, in verse 19, or 9, we find that even though Lot might have deceived himself into thinking that he had some kind of influence over his fellow citizens for good as he had sat at the city gate, uh, the mob revealed his ineffective leadership by stating what they really thought of him. It finally comes out. In effect, they said, you don't even belong here. Now, in this case, the mob knew more than he knew because he didn't belong there. Did he? He was a Christian. He had no business being there. They said, you're not one of us, and we don't need you judging us. You see, they had picked up on Lot's words that their acts were wicked back in verse 7. They picked up on it. You called us wicked. We don't need you judging us. To them, really, he was nothing more than a hypocrite. He was living where he didn't belong, and he was attempting to be accepted and respected by those on the one hand whom he called brethren, yet on the other hand, he was calling them wicked. And then to top matters, who was he to judge them when he was willing to sacrifice his own two daughters to their evil lusts? You know, a compromising, backslidden, double-minded, hypocritical believer will almost always, guaranteed, be ridiculed sooner or later, scorned and despised and disrespected by both the world and by the Christian community just as Lot was. Well, all that Lot seemed to accomplish by talking to the mob outside of his house was to further ignite their anger. So now they turned to threatening him and telling him that they would do worse with him than what they had intended to do with the angels. And if the mob had their way unhindered, their gang rape would likely end, as we said before, in murder, in the murder of Lot, here in this case. And then the Sodomites became so violent at this point that they began to press in upon him with intentions of abusing him, breaking down his door, getting inside to also abuse his two guests and probably anyone else who was in the house, which would mean his wife and two daughters as well. They were at this point totally beyond rationalization. Their lusts had complete dominion over them, and the riot had gotten quite out of hand. So it was time for a little angelic intervention. The angels had seen and they had heard enough. Remember, they had been sent to Sodom to assess the situation. 
They'd assessed it, and they knew that Sodom was now depraved beyond repentance and that she was overripe for judgment. So in verses 10 and 11, we find that the two angels reach out their hand and they pull Lot into the house and shut the door. And then what did they do? They smote all the men outside, both small and great, with blindness. God's messengers had never, ever been in trouble. It had not been necessary for Lot to attempt to protect them or to offer his daughters in their place. They could handle themselves, and they did. Now, the blindness, we get a little uh, difference of opinion from commentators on this. The blindness with, with which they struck the Sodomites may have been a blindness of confusion, perhaps accomplished by a blinding light of some kind. Um, Now, some Bible commentators make that suggestion. Or it might have been actually a blindness of the eyes. However, it would really seem strange that if they were suddenly totally blind, that they would not become very, very frightened. And um, that their fear would overtake their lust and the mob would break up with great cries of agony because of their lost eyesight. And that's why many suggest, and there's another passage in the scripture, I can't remember where it was in Kings somewhere, that suggests that this might have been a blindness of confusion or some kind of blinding light um, so that the narrative leaves them. Can you imagine this? The whole city of men, small and great, young and old, groping around in persistent stupidity and lust as they totally just wear themselves out trying to find Lot's door, his front door. I mean, what a picture of the depravity of man. But God had shut the door, you know? The angels pulled Lot in and shut the door, and when God shuts the door, no man can open it. If Lot had not known previously who his guests were, guess what? He knew now who they were. Well, it was clearly time to get out of Sodom. Judgment was imminent after that very sickening scene. The angels, so then the angels told Lot their reason. For their visit. They were there to rescue him and his family from Sodom because the Lord had sent them to destroy it. Verse 13. The Lord's message to Abraham, here we have another comparison. The Lord's message back in chapter um, 18 had been a happy message. Remember? Sarah was to bear a son. Now, in contrast, the heavenly message to Lot was not at all a happy one. It was a tragic and a frightening one. The message was that Sodom was to be destroyed. However, in answer to Abraham's concern for his nephew, Lot was to be rescued. Even though there weren't ten righteous people in the city, yet God in his grace was going to rescue Lot and even any family members who would go along with him who he could persuade to leave him, leave with him, leave the city. And this is just another example of God's mercy in that he was going to allow even unrighteous people to leave the city because I don't really think any of Lot's family was saved. I don't know about those two daughters, but I don't think so. But... God's mercy even was going to allow the the Sodomite men that two other of his daughters had married 
to leave the city if they would go. But the real tragedy of Lot's compromised worldly testimony and life was that he was unable to persuade any of his own children other than the two unmarried daughters and his wife who lived in his own home. And remember, now they have just seen what happened. They've seen the angels and the miraculous uh, saving power and the blindness, so, so they do go along with Lot. Um, but other than that, he was not able to get any of his other family to listen to him. His sons-in-law actually mocked him. Did I read that? No, I haven't read that. I don't know what happened. I forgot a section here somewhere. Verses 12 to 14. It says, And the men said unto Lot, Hast thou any besides son-in-law and thy sons and thy daughters? And whatsoever thou hast in the city, bring them out of this place. For we will destroy this place, because the cry of them is waxen great before the face of the Lord, and the Lord hath sent us to destroy it. And Lot went out and spake unto his sons-in-law, which married his daughters, and said, Up! Get you out of this place, for the Lord will destroy this city. But he seemed as one that mocked unto his sons-in-law. Okay, I'm sorry, I hadn't read that before. So the real tragedy was that uh, he couldn't even influence his own children. Um, Morris says, again I quote from Dr. Henry Morris's commentary on Genesis, he says that Lot didn't even bother, as far as the record is concerned, to go to warn his own sons, suggesting that it may be because they were so involved in the sodomite ungodliness that he knew they would never listen to him. And this is um, based on those who believe that he had sons because of the angel's reference to not only sons-in-law, but also to his sons. So... Um, and that may explain why he didn't go to his own sons if, if he knew that they wouldn't even begin to listen. But what we do know is that his own sons, in law, he had no testimony even before them, that they totally mocked him and just thought he was being ridiculous and fanatical, etc. So Lot had failed miserably to lead his own children to a knowledge of the Lord and to teach them in his ways. He was <clears throat> too much a friend of the world. You know, unsaved people will find it very, very difficult to believe someone who, for example, spends all his time and energy on personal success in the world and then tries to tell them that he is anxiously waiting for the return of his Lord. You know, they'll just do the same thing as these sons-in-law. They'll mock him. Yeah, right. You've got your affection set on this world. We don't see it on heaven. You're building an empire down here. You know, everything you do is built around this world. <clears throat> so Lot, because that was his kind of testimony, he could not even convince his own children to flee from the <clears throat> imminent wrath of God. His family, having spent their lives in Sodom, had the mentality of Sodom. And that's what will happen. You'll get the world's mentality if you live with the world, act like the world, smell like the world, dress like the world, listen to the world's music, etc. Lot, having spent so many years in a worldly, backslidden condition, had absolutely no spiritual power. That's sad. And again, this stands in contrast to Abraham. Remember what the Lord said to Abraham in commendation? Look at verse 19 of chapter 18. 
the Lord said of his friend Abraham, For I know him that he will command his children and his household after him, and they shall keep the way of the Lord to do justice and judgment. So, you have a choice. You can pick this day who you will be like. Will you be like Abraham, the friend of, the, of God, or will you be like Lot, the friend of the world? And if you are like Lot, I suggest that today be the beginning of the end of that, that you stop compromising, stop trying to ride the fence between the world and the church and just get hot on fire for the Lord Jesus Christ. It's never too late. Let's pray. Father, if we are vexed in our righteous souls with the unlawful deeds and the filthiness of the world around us, which I hope we are, because we should be, then may we take a stand. May we speak out for you and for righteousness and for the absolute principles of your word. Help us to be bold like Abraham. And not to be compromisers, not to be friends of the world. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life, is not of you, Father, but is of this world. We know that if we are born again, that we have trusted Christ, if we have trusted Christ's death for our sins, that then the Holy Spirit dwells in us and our bodies are not our own. They are the members of Christ, and, and they are actually the temple of the Holy Spirit. So what we do with them is so important. Father, help us not to be stumbling blocks by our testimonies. Help us, Father, to be godly leaders in our communities and in our school systems and in our homes. Help us to be godly wives, godly mothers, godly grandmothers, aunts, teachers, whatever our circle of influence. Help us to be godly over those we come into contact with. We know that your word says, Come out from among them and be ye separate, and touch not the unclean thing. And that's what we want to do, Father. We want to be separated, holy, godly believers that you will call your friends so that we can have fellowship with you, that you will feel comfortable in our homes supping with us. Father, thank you for the many lessons you teach us. And Father, we do pray for the homosexual and lesbian community in our, in our country, in our world. We pray, Father, that by the hundreds and thousands they would repent and turn unto you and be saved. And we pray these things in Jesus' name for his sake. Amen.